everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, February the 24th. While state lawmakers had the day off on Monday for the holiday, those wanting to become Denver's next mayor have been gathering together on Monday and pretty much every other day this week, it seems like, for forums and or debates, trying to connect with voters. To talk about how the race is going for what some say is the most powerful political position in our state and also what else has transpired this week in Colorado, I want to introduce you to tonight's panel. We have Krista Kafer, columnist for the Denver Post, along with Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes, and Elena Alvarez, reporter for Axios Denver, as well as Adam Berg, Vice President of Government Affairs, Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. Thanks to you, you all. A poll was released this week that reveals that 60% of voters in Denver are undecided as to who to vote for among the 17 candidates running for mayor. Krista, for the first time in 12 years, we are going to elect a new mayor, and it's such a scrambled field. Yeah, it's a huge field. There's tons and tons of people. I am really grateful that Kelly Bruff came out on top. Um, I think she would make a great, a, a, you know, a great mayor. Um, I would have loved to see uh, Kwame have a little bit better showing in that that list, but there's still time for him to, uh, you know, make up some of that position and and float closer to the top. Also, the Republican did okay, came in sixth in that poll. So I think it shows that that's certainly possible. In Aurora, the adjacent city, you did have a situation where there were a ton of candidates, and Mike Kaufman, the Republican, ended up on top. So I think uh, Andy Rougeau definitely has uh, a, a chance to make that. Um, in the meanwhile, though, I think it's really important that a, a moderate, be it a Democrat or a Republican, rise to the top and stay at the top. As you mentioned, 60% are still not certain of who they're going to vote for. So encouraging those people, if you leave it, live in Denver, you know, look around. Do you want more vagrant camps with stolen bicycles and crime and drugs, or do you want a city that was that is run well, the way it was run under, say, Hickenlooper? Let's bring back a moderate. Let's bring back someone like Kelly Bruff or, or Kwame Spearman. And I don't know what that 60% means. Are there too many candidates? People don't really know who everybody is yet. This weekend, we are producing a forum here at PBS 12. Eric and Elaine will be with me, and we're hoping that this will be a time for the candidates to show people who they are, what they believe in. Well, we certainly hope it will, and it will be one more opportunity, but it's not the only opportunity. I want viewers, obviously, to mm -hmm. tune in, and I think it will be a, a good 90-minute forum, but uh, they've had other opportunities, and there will be more after ours, and no one has really been able to break from the pack now. Uh, the real number, and Krista mentioned this, is the 60% number of people who haven't made up their mind. If I was one of these candidates, I'd probably head to the county courthouse this afternoon and had my name legally changed to undecided. <laughs> and th th that's, you know, that, that would be the way to go. Uh, obviously, we're headed for a runoff. Yes, Kelly Bruff was, you know, a percentage point ahead of anyone else, but no one has even seen the 10% mark. I think there are two factors at play, Kyle. One is the media landscape is totally different in this town, as all of us on this panel know from the last time we had an open mayoral race. There's not a competitive newspaper war, or, or at least not in the sense of the Rocky and the Post with two robust papers and full staffs covering these races. Uh, and then the second is, I think, just purely the size of the field. I think a whole lot of voters are, they don't know where to turn. I mean, to Eric's point, I think we really need to hear now how they're going to set themselves apart, how they're resonating with voters, and how they're going to win. To Eric's point, just to echo him, I mean, the fact that no candidate in the mayor's race is above 10% is, uh, I think, a sign that 
Denver Democrats have really shot themselves in the foot by overcrowding the field. Um, this poll makes it clear that candidates are, are having trouble swaying voters, and I think a key reason is because everyone on stage practically agrees on the most pressing issues facing Denver. They also, on top of that, agree widely on how to address those issues. Um, the bottom line is that money and being an established local leader is not uh, the the isn't everything in this race. It's not the ticket. Um, and with basically two weeks until ballots begin landing in mailboxes, these candidates have to start differentiating themselves now or they're not going to engage, engage voters and they won't show up. March 13th, that's the day the ballots go out, right? March 13th, mm -hmm. they'll be here before we know it. Adam, this poll was conducted by Denver business leaders under the newly formed organization, A Denver For Us All. Talk about how much this election means to the business community. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, this is the first open seat in a dozen years. Think about how much Denver's changed uh, in the last 12 years since we've had an election. And now we're really battling, battling a confluence of events in this election, whether that's the pandemic, inflation, regulatory costs. I think this is an example of historically businesses have been able to sit out these elections under the preface that we were going to get someone reasonable to come into this city and keep our growth moving forward. And that's not guaranteed anymore. Uh, so more than ever, I think businesses are following this election and paying close attention. And don't be surprised to hear more business voices chime in as we see things progress the next couple weeks. Okay. Uh, before we move on, I just want to acknowledge that we will be asking questions of 10 of the 17 candidates in our, in our forum that airs at 5 o'clock on Sunday. We base that decision to have 10 candidates on the individual and self-contributions to the campaigns as tallied by uh, the Denver City Clerk's Office as of 8 a.m. on the morning of February the 7th. We would have loved to have had all the voices, right? But it's logistically very difficult to have a strong conversation with 17 people at one time. There are some other political races in the works as well. Already for the congressional seat, the third congressional seat on the Western Slope, and then the race for statewide head of the Republican Party. Eric. Yes, we do have other races. I mean, we just finished one last fall. Uh, I forget what the election date was, but Lauren Boebert wasn't declared the winner of that race until maybe a week after, uh, after, after that election date. And already she has a rematch in the works in all likelihood uh, for 2024 against Adam Frisch. Uh, I don't know that Adam Frisch has a huge constituency out there. Adam Frisch is a proxy for anyone but Lauren Boebert. And he already raised like $500,000, real money, just in his first week as an announced candidate. But that is all money. Again, it's not about Adam Frisch. It's about who he's running against and the, the lightning rod that is Lauren Boebert. And the easy segue from there is to the state Republican race, which is full of a whole lot of Lauren Boeberts, and that's all there is is these people, you know, I'm writing a column, or I've written the column, it will run this weekend, shameless plug, catch it this uh, Sunday in Colorado Politics next week in the Gazette. Uh, and the headline is to the effect of the elephant is going away as the GOP symbol, the new symbol uh, is a shovel. Because when you're a hole, apparently the strategy is just keep on digging. And all of these candidates for Republican chair would dig that hole even deeper if that is possible. They're all election deniers. 
Elena, this is decided like in a couple of weeks too, March 11th or something. Who Who's voting on who is the next chair of the Republican Party in Colorado? That's correct. So it's actually held on March 11th in Loveland in a hotel. Interesting fact. Um, the election is run and decided by the state's central committee, which includes county party officers. It's a multi-hundred group. It's a big, large group. Um, and we'll certainly be watching that closely. I mean, at least six people are running already for this chair position including former state representative Dave Williams. Um, there's plenty of chatter about him and, and his past. And then, of course, we have Tina Peters, who's also running for this position. Uh, plenty of color in her past, too, including, you know, she's facing 10 state criminal charges. She's under federal investigation. She has an upcoming election tampering trial. Um, so the reality is, uh, you know, I think this seems to suggest that Republicans really aren't interested in course correcting as far as Republican leadership goes. And the reality is that whoever is is elected has this very tall task, which I'm not sure if they are going to uh, even pick up this task, but of, of really rebuilding the Republican Party and trying to find unity because there are plenty of Republicans in Colorado outside of this small group who are so lost and looking for leadership and really looking to come back to a middle ground and be reasonable with policies. Um, and, and this year, it's not looking like they're going to have that, that leadership. You mentioned policies. Adam, I'm curious, does the state party chair for either party have much influence? What kind of influence at the state legislative level? Sure. Um, so I think in general they have large influence. We're talking about the people who are pivotal when it comes to creating the infrastructure, the volunteers, candidate recruitment, the ground game for these parties. So the person who's going to be recruiting future General Assembly members, hypothetically, would be this party chair. I think what's so interesting with both, uh, state Democrats have had to, just two party chairs in the last decade. Uh, meanwhile, Republicans haven't reelected someone to a second term since 2013. So whoever wins these could hypothetically create the long-term face of the party, or if we follow typical standard, uh, unfortunately, from the Republican side, this will just last for a short time before they look to someone new to come in. And it, does the business community pay a lot of attention to who this next person will be? This is something we're watching. We've not chosen to weigh in. Yeah. Uh, I think talk about hyper-political when you get into this space. Um, so whoever is uh, chosen, we will certainly meet with them and, and hope to build a relationship there. Uh, but we'll let this play out on its own. Well, and I hope that the chamber likes nuts because it's a bowl of mixed nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got crazy people like Tina Peters. You've got you know, Williams, at least Eric is easy on the eyes, but I mean, they're all election deniers, which means they're all either delusional or con men, or in the case of Peters, full on crazy, let's take her to the asylum, right? This is a problem for the party because we have some very serious people in this state, serious minds, serious thinkers. You look at, uh, you know, look at Lang Sias, for example, or, or George Brockler, any of the folks that ran at the statewide, or even our, our members of Congress that, you know, are, are for the most part, some exceptions, we know who I'm talking about, um, are, are good, solid, smart people. And so to the fact that the party could be led by somebody who belongs in a lunatic asylum is problematic. I would love for someone to step up maybe last minute and say, I am here to help steer this party back to its, its roots. I mean, we've got, you know, it's, it's the party of Lincoln. It's the party of um, you know, not just conservatives, but also libertarians and, uh, you know, whether it's you know, Buckley, all these great minds in the past um, and have done really great things for this country, only to end up with uh, these, you know, mixed nuts at the table. We need to have some serious candidates. There's, 
there's got to be a way out of the situation. Have you heard any inkling that anyone's considering staying? No, in? I've been actively trying to draft mm -hmm. uh, Lang Sias and George Brockler. Eric, you mentioned? No, I think uh, we should start at this table a movement to draft Krista Caper. Oh. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. <laughs> 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 All right, aside from the mayor poll we mentioned off the top of the show, there seems to be a flood of surveys coming out these days that look into what Coloradans want and what they want to improve. Elena, affordability is the most pressing concern throughout the Rocky Mountain West. That's absolutely right. So this survey um, from the Conservation in West poll, uh, it found affordability and water are the most pressing concerns across eight mountain states, including Colorado. So the elevated concerns matter not only because they're a key benchmark for policymakers, but they're really suggesting that the Western way of life is uh, at risk because of things like inflation and climate change. Um, something I found interesting is that the top concerns shift a little bit by state. So in Colorado, um, the issue of crowded recreation sites uh, was way higher than other Mountain West states, which as if anyone has gone to a state park, you know how that, or, or tried to you know, camp at Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, it's, it's very, very crowded. Uh, but you know, in places like Arizona, low river water levels were a top concern, and, and whereas in Utah, it was more like rising gas prices. Really interesting. So um, I think the big picture takeaway here is that these concerns reflect a slew of new pressures that the West is really facing um, that come from increasing populations, also from the pandemic's outdoor recreation boom. Um, so this is certainly a new era for the West, and, and I don't envy the policymakers who have to wrestle with these new realities um, and find a new way forward. There is a lot, right? Um, Adam, another survey just really shows how the affordability factor is affecting the business climate in Colorado. Sure, yeah, and we've seen this both in recent surveys and uh, our EDC's Tour to More Competitive Colorado report. So to give you an idea, medium home listing prices crested well over $600,000 in Denver in mid-2022. We've seen those drop a little bit, but it's a large enough impact and a little enough drop that CNBC actually recently knocked us down in terms of top states for business because this is now no longer considered a place where regular people can afford to live. Um, we continue to hear about the labor, the labor shortage and the lingering aspects of that. And as a whole, while some reports and surveys are finding that Colorado remains a top draw for people to want to come and live and work, it's not something we should take for granted. I think we're seeing enough impact on the affordability aspect in particular uh, that it's go we're going to have to address the high cost of living and the state's workforce faster. Otherwise, we're continuing to see this negative impact. Yeah. All right, Krista. So if making the state a lot less affordable is the legislature's goal, I think they're right in the right lane, right? They, they're doing things right now that are going to make the state less affordable. There are going to be fewer jobs and fewer rentals. Rent control makes property less affordable and actually diminishes the quality. If we look at the so-called uh, predictability, uh, fairness, workplace, some silly, uh, I'm sure they put together something that sounds good, but the fact is, is that that will make jobs, uh, it, it could actually close restaurants, make fewer jobs, fewer hours for people working those jobs. My prediction is that not only are you going to keep people on when times are slow, so basically making people who are tipped workers clean baseboards and fold pizza boxes, not getting any tips, or you're going to underschedule those positions so those folks have to really hustle when it's busy, and then you get less tips because customers are mad. So this is actually anti-worker, anti-job, in the case of the rental stuff, anti-rental. It is... Uh, a lot of bad ideas, and so I guess if they want the state to, I don't know, grind to a halt, 
perhaps uh, this is the way to go. Otherwise, I, I'm hoping maybe the chamber can get to them and you know just give them a, a 101 in economics. I think you would like to do that. <laughs> I would like to do that. Yeah, we're, we're trying. Uh, uh, Eric. Uh, Krista is right on the rent control piece. I mean, as I've said, you legislature can repeal lots of laws, but you can't repeal the law of supply and demand. And this is just a concept that has been proven not to work anywhere tested. But I really want to play off of Adam's uh, comments here, and particularly with regard to the price of housing. Um, I read an article yesterday in The Atlantic, and I had not heard this phrase before, but it talks about the, quote, housing theory of everything and how unaffordability in the housing market ripples into all other quarters, whether it is the labor pool, whether it is the retail stores you have available, whether it is the businesses that will locate in a neighborhood or whatever, because if there is not a base of residents, uh, then you don't have the labor pool, you don't have the clientele for these restaurants, et cetera. It is this ripple effect, and it's a, it was an interesting read, and it rings true to me. Let's talk about some of the bills that are getting some traction in the state legislature. Adam, we're seven weeks, is it, into the legislature, and it feels as though some of these big ideas we've been talking about are still in the works. Yeah, that's right. We're just over... Uh, a quarter of the way into this legislative session. We have just over 70 days left. Uh, and I think the big takeaway here is highlighted by our partners at Axios uh, is we're still waiting for a, a majority of some of these large packages we've seen. So while we have 400 plus bills introduced, uh, we have not seen many of the, the assault weapons bans that we've seen coming or expecting to see. We've not seen the governor's proposal around zoning and local control. Uh, and we've not seen other measures related to tax relief and other affordability components. I think it's a, a third of the legislature being new and trying to understand the process. I think it's new leadership in the House trying to manage a very progressive caucus. Uh, and then also a very influential first floor, which is the governor's office, who uh, is not bashful about weighing in on what he hopes to see come forward. Yeah. Krista, he has been very vocal about what he does not want to see. Well, you know, I think he did actually take a little bit of econ at Princeton, so I think he knows a thing or two. Hopefully he can put the kibosh on some of these really bad bills. I, I want to mention a good bill that did not get the hearing that it deserved. Some Republican women put forth a bill to protect women's sports um, from men that want to compete with women. As you know, there are uh, men and boys who wish to live as girls and women and to compete on our teams, to share bathroom space with us, to share locker room space with us, um, to basically infringe on our right of association and our right to privacy. And so these women came forward and said, this is important. We need to protect women's spaces. We need to protect women's sports. And then, of course, it hit the committee. And uh, the guys that voted it down, I use the word guys specifically, because it was men who knocked down this bill to protect women's sports. So uh, think about that. Remember, they, uh, you've come a long way, baby, uh, was the old slogan for Virginia cigarettes. Slims. Yeah, back in the mm -hmm. day, back when I smoked. Um, I'm not sure we've come such a long way. I guess my takeaway of the session so far is that I think we're really waiting for the meat um, and right now it's all tangential stuff, or that seems to be the focus. Every day it's a new story of some bill. Some of them sound good, some of them sound bad, but none of them really relate to the crux of issues that are facing this state. It's all fluff, it's all tangential stuff. The story this morning was on a book to regulate uh, deposits that landlords can, can charge for pets. 
I take second place to no one in you know, affection, love for my dog, but I'm not just sure that that is an issue front and center to the welfare of the people of Colorado. My takeaway from the session so far is if this is the stuff we're debating, the state must be in pretty good shape. But yet I know the state is not in that good shape and we're really avoiding the court stuff. Hopefully it will come soon. I agree with you because producing this show every week, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for things to like get some action. Elena, your thoughts on this session thus far? We're waiting too. Uh, this week yeah, we've bet. gotten we've gotten some movement um, about a gun bill package that we've been eagerly awaiting. Um, so we have a piece of legislation that was introduced um, that will that includes a three-day waiting period for all gun purchases. There's another uh, that would raise the age to purchase a firearm to 21. Um, and then another would make it easier to sue firearm manufacturers uh, for if they were found liable. Um, the big piece of this that is still not introduced is that assault weapons ban. I think Adam mentioned it, um, which is actually splitting the party. Democrats can't find common ground yet to actually file the language. Um, another bill that's still floating in the ether is um, on stricter regulations over ghost guns, which is something that uh, Governor Jared Polis said was one of his top priorities in the state of uh, state address. So we're waiting, we're watching, but I think you know it reminds me of a conversation that we had at this table maybe in December about how if Democrats can't you know actually get stuff done, what does that say? You know, having the majority, what does that say about this party? infighting dysfunction, um, and I think we're seeing, you know, the legislation is not rolling through very smoothly as, as it would predictably yeah. do. All right, now let's get to our lightning round where we kind of go down the panel, panelists, and ask them what they think was great this week, not so great, uh, good and the bad. Let's start with you, Krista. You know, I'm going to go bad. after the, the, the whiners, right? It, the fact is, is that we've had this wonderful, cold, snowy winter. We need the snow. We need the moisture. The cold is great. It can maybe kill some of those stupid beetles. I love these cold, snowy winters, and yet you've got people whining. I, uh, I think maybe uh, they might want to consider relocation. Well, both on a micro level of one very disturbed individual who was making these swatting phone calls yesterday, yes. but also on the macro level of the society we're living in right now, where all that stuff is so, it's so on the surface, and there's such tension, and there's such believability. I mean, this guy was going down uh, what appeared to be an alphabetical list of schools and calling in active shooter threats that sounded very real and very lifelike. He's probably, you know, some loser sitting in mom's basement somewhere making these phone calls. But the, the ripple effect, and then we wonder about why um, kids today, uh, you know, are suffering record levels of mental health crisis, and it's the world we're, we're forcing them to grow up in. That was also my disgrace of the week. I think uh, at a time when you know teachers, teens, their mental health—they're really at the brink. Uh, this is the last thing they need is another you know false lockdown. They don't know what's what's real or what's not, um, and that takes a toll on their mental health no matter what. It's cruel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like to keep mine focused on what we're seeing down at the Capitol. The big one this past week. Uh, a continuation of a 2019 law titled Equal Pay for Equal Work. The way I think all of us can agree, equal pay is something we're all in favor of. We understand the concern. The way these bills are being designed and this corrective measure is being designed actually hinders those it is most intended to work. So it deals with not allowing you to inline promote someone who's a, a good employee. You now have to go through this public facing process, post the salary, post why they earn this position, and then really hindering our ability to bring in remote workers. So I think these things are of noble intent. When they're poorly designed, they have serious repercussions. Okay. 
All right, let's talk about something that's good. I have nothing good to say about anybody, but I will say that um, I had a really great bowl of menudo this week. I love the uh, Hispanic um, culinary influence in this state, and so the food was good. Well, that's good. Yeah. All right. To Adam's point about equal pay for equal work, I yeah. just want to assure our viewers that for the debate this weekend, there will be equal pay for equal work. One male, one female here, we will be getting the same zero dollars. Um, so it's very equal pay for, uh, for that forum, which I hope uh, viewers will tune into. And real quickly, Kyle, it's a year ago today that uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine and hats off and thoughts and blessings and prayers and hopefully lots of money and aid to the people of Ukraine. I'm just echoing you now, apparently. Uh, I'm extremely excited and honored to be a part of the PBS debate this weekend. Um, I don't, I won't miss the logistical lift of having to navigate 10 candidates, but I'm confident we're gonna have a really great conversation. Mm -hmm. I have to correct you both. It's hard, it's not a debate. Forum, excuse it's a me. Forum. forum, thank you. Yes. Provide cookies. <laughs> what? You provide cookies. It's more like cookies. <laughs> All right. Sure. And I'm, I'm going to bring it back to the Capitol okay. uh, and some good news, which I always hope yes. for. There was a really poorly designed fair work week or predictive scheduling bill mm -hmm. uh, that was recently in committee. We saw businesses, particularly restaurant owners, show up in droves to oppose this measure. And I think it goes to show, and they've delayed it for a vote only. They're going to amend it. I still think it's not going to pass. It shows when Coloradans and business owners express their voice, when they show up and they, they have their voices heard by legislators, we can still have an impact. And that always makes me optimistic. That so. is good. I want to share a cool move by a local city council member. I'm not going to say who. Uh, my daughter recently turned 18, and she received a letter in the mail from our council member wishing her a happy birthday and also included a pocket constitution to remind her that when we as a community and our nation come together and work together, all is good. There were also some mentions in the letter about some community projects. If she wanted to get involved, go to this website. And I just think that's really cool that to engage cool. younger people, to engage all of us, right? Speaking of coming together, Again, another plug. This Sunday, join the Colorado Inside Out Mayoral Forum here on PBS 12. It will start at 5 o'clock Sunday, goes up until 6.30. If you're busy, you can catch it anytime at pbs12.org. It'll be the place to go to watch it again or share it with someone that you think needs to know about what's going on with the mayoral uh, race. And, yeah, that is coming up in April. So let's get informed, everybody. Thanks for watching. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.